So I, I just want us to first just to acknowledge the quiet. There are a number of us in the room and sometimes we can get lost in the interactive quality of the numbers and forget the quiet which holds everything. And just to acknowledge that for a moment. <clears throat> because uh, the Dharma comes from that, comes from the quiet. And from the quiet, you can explain the form or expression or manifestation. You can't ex- adequately categorize or explain the form from form because it's noisy. Real, it's like noise trying to explain noise. It just doesn't encompass the whole. But from quiet, you can explain the whole. So I want to talk tonight about embodied action. It's a very important theme, whether you've been following this particular series or not. This is a standalone talk. And it's essential. That's why I didn't want to leave it out. <clears throat> it's one, I think, that is less well-remembered in the course of our practice. Most of us who have a steady and sincere practice have established a certain quiet reference for ourselves, a daily sitting. We have had insight, which is what this tradition is about, having and understanding the nature of life through direct seeing, participatory seeing. And we have a growing acknowledgement and understanding of life in its true shape and form and expression. And yet, When we get up from our sitting or our activity level increases, usually we don't carry the profound depths of what we have just seen or the insights that we have aligned ourselves with into our active expression of daily living. And I would like to assert very strongly tonight that the Dharma remains incomplete without that final refuge of engaging it within the actions we take because it doesn't come together. Let me just be very honest about this. If the insights we have, if the understanding and wisdom that we accrue just stays in its latent form as kind of a sort of a mental process, well, if it's not engaged, it becomes kind of a philosophy sort of a way we understand life, although it doesn't become a direction and view for ourselves, except theoretical. And we're up against an enormous amount of conditioning that keeps us arrested within our normal and fixed responses that have led to the life we have been leading. And it really requires a very strong intentionality to break out of the fixation of that old paradigm, that encrusted way that we have established ourselves in our life, and to follow what can sometimes be a very tenuous thread into this new paradigm of insight. It doesn't seem that convincing once we're outside of the insight itself. It seems like we read it in a good Dharma book but we're not yet thoroughly convinced in it. And so we hesitate in full engagement and we find ourselves 
waiting for more proof before we actually involve ourselves in that action. And I'd like to state tonight that that proof comes, but it only comes after the action is engaged in, not before. So if you're waiting for some verifiable reason to engage in dharma, you're not going to find that until you engage in dharma through activity. I was once at the, in the satsang of Nisargadatta Maharaj. Some of you know that I was a student of his and <clears throat> was a monk actually when I went to see him in Bombay, India in 1980. And uh, he uh, sort of played with the fact that I was in robes and had me sit in the front and then tell him all the things I knew arrogantly, (laughs) thinking I was actually instructing him on the ways of Buddhism. And he listened. So I was convinced I was of (laughs) uplifted value. (laughs) Anyway, uh, a few days into that, he told me to Uh, go back and sit in the back because I'd been saying nothing useful to him. (laughs) And uh, he said, you know, if you'd like to uh, get over your your, uh, pontificating, your pretensiveness, he says, just engage yourself in what you've been saying instead of just talking about what you're saying. And I thought I had been engaging in what I'm saying, but in in the intervening 30 years, I began to understand what he meant. Was that, uh, you know, it, it all becomes kind of theoretical down there. And we know how life is really, but we aren't willing to live it as it really is. And that was what the point of these this series, the fundamentals of the Dharma series was about, was to show us point after point, week after week, where we're not living, where we know the truth. We know, for instance, as one of the talks directed us, we know to move towards the difficult rather than to recoil in our resistance and aversion to the difficult because it is at that point that wisdom can be accrued, that we can understand the formation of ourselves, our mind states, our sense of embodiment, where we are rubbing in friction with and resistance to the difficult, the aversive qualities of life. Yet, time and time again, I see people doing just the opposite who are long and sincere practitioners in the Dharma. Why is it that we're not engaging the Dharma in a way that allows us to enter that profundity and actually change ourselves in intention, in view. Because once we do engage in it, although it's difficult to get over the conditioned resistance to continue to find and pursue the pleasurable aspects of life, it's tremendously uh, difficult because we're so conditioned to follow our life in that pursuit. But once we, once we have seen sufficiently that a life lived in that way is really a, an insane life. Then why is it that we don't 
re-engage ourselves, align ourselves to the truth that we have experienced? Why don't we actually engage life? Because when we do, something happens to our practice. There is a, a completion in our practice. A completion, for instance, in intention. Intention remains remote and uh, somewhat loosely formed until we actually engage in the spirit in action uh, to what it is that uh, we believe to be true. When we put ourselves in line with action, then that intention arises to the occasion. It solidifies itself and deepens itself, embeds itself more fully in our, in our minds. Intention really governs the whole of the meditation process. Without intention, we're, we have no bearing. We have no guidance system. There's no motor to this thing. Once we have established an intentionality, an assertion that this is the way we're moving, not a New Year's resolution. Let's make a clear distinction between the willful and volitional intention of a New Year's resolution, which really is not based on wisdom at all. It's based upon part of yourself liking the direction you're taking, and then there's a resistant part of yourself that's going to undermine that direction, and that's why resolutions are always incomplete or mostly incomplete. It's because there isn't sufficient wisdom to follow through with that resolve. But in intentionality is based in wisdom. It's based in what we have seen. And what we have seen holds us to a different level of sincerity than a re- resolution that's based in ignorance. So once mo- all of us have a body of wisdom, of understanding, but it remains dormant until we actually act upon it. I have a very dear friend who may be in the crowd, long-time sitter of several decades, really. And uh, she uh, has uh, an illness which uh, has followed her through most of her life. And she's seen every uh, healer in the area that you can name psychic healers and uh, physical healers and neurologists and on and on. And she was talking to me about all the different people she has seen and she now is starting to go to a therapist who is a uh, mindfulness-based therapist. And the mindfulness-based therapist who probably has done very limited practice told her that when she feels this illness coming up in this case it's headaches she's to meet the headaches and not run towards her usual remedies but really just to meet the spirit of the headache with some degree of calm and repose and openness Now, how many of us have heard that 10,000 times in our meditation practice? This woman, who has been doing this for decades, says, my God, that was a revelation, she said. (laughs) Not because it was a revelation in Dharma, but because this was the first time she actually did it. 
Do you see what I'm saying? And we just don't trust it. We trust the medicine. We trust the healer. We trust the external uh, remedy. We don't trust the Dharma sufficiently to move it in that direction. And yet it took someone who had much less practice experience than this friend to just give her that simple instruction. And because it came from somebody who she gave the authority to, she did it and found, it, found how helpful it was. So I just suggest now, before we get too involved in this talk, for us just to look at our lives a little bit here and see where it is that we hold ourselves back where we know what we need to do, but don't do what we need to do. Because we all have a sense of what we need to do. In fact, one point the Dharma was expressed to me by a teacher as simply doing what you know to do. And yet we, we don't trust it somehow. Because it's not objective. It's not, I don't know. It's just easier to follow our old conditioning. Well, intentionality and view depend upon our actions. Wise action in the Buddhist's Eightfold Path isn't something that is kind of a, just another step on the path. It holds all the previous steps within the path and builds upon. When we put ourselves in action, think of it energetically for a moment, if you just think about your insight and reflect upon it, the energy of a thought, how much energy is in a thought? Well, there's some energy there, but it's kind of minor. But when you put yourself in action, think of the energy of the system's action and the conviction that must follow if you're going to do that, the energetic conviction that follows that when you actually move in the direction of an alignment with the truth. It's one thing to think about it. Yes, it's helpful to reflect upon it. Yes, it's helpful to do that. But if it just stays at that level, then the body's not involved. And this is a mind and body experience from day one. So if your practice has felt kind of limited, not fully invested, I would suggest it's probably because of this reason. And that's what the homework is that we give out every week. The homework is an attempt to make the spirit of the Dharma talk a reality of engagement. It's asking you forward. And how many of us take it home and pin it on our refrigerator and forget all about it for the next six days? Maybe reading it right before you come the following week so you have something to discuss. We have to keep this alive. Someone once remarked that you are known 10% by what you say and 90% by what you do. Words are very easily spoken. But when you put yourself in action, that's a different, that's a different requirement. So I want to talk uh, this evening about uh, living the view and in intention. Living it. Not 
It sounds wonderful. I mean, everybody's like, interconnectedness. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, we can all be happy and, and smile together and, you know, be loving on some kind of what? I don't know, some sort of new age way. I don't want any, that stuff just uh, sends shivers up my spine. I want nothing to do with that. This has to be, this has to, this has to get into our cells. This is a cellular business. Right? This is for the cells of our body. So living the view. Living the intention. And because we're up against such insurmountable odds, if you look at how long you've been practicing the Dharma in terms of time, and how long you've been alive and the conditioning backup, buildup from that, you can see the two are heavily outweighed. The conditioning far outweighs the Dharma experience that most of us have had in our life. And so it's just, it's just easier to go with what we know how to do. We just, we just, okay, you just do it the way you've always done it. You just fit nicely in the, in the groove of our habits. And, and yet this sense of action asks us to disengage from that conditioning and that's probably why it's so upsetting because it requires a moment of awkwardness. When you don't have the easy place to take the next step, there's a pause there where it's a kind of an awkward feeling. I really don't know what, the, what to do here. And as that fear abates, you'll see that there's a kind of clarity. If we don't rush in to try to fill that space with our conditioned reference, you'll find that there's a space that opens up there that allows clarity and discernment to occur. And then you do what's appropriate given the expanse of that discernment. It may not be what you have led yourself to usually do in that particular situation probably won't be because what we have usually done is acted from our own self-concern. When you release the need to act from your self-concern, you engage the entirety. In Buddhism, it's called clear comprehension. You engage the moment entirely and then operate and act from the moment, not just from your own needs within that moment. And that requires discernment, looking, seeing, feeling, sensing. It requires all, everything from body, everything from mind. Living the view. Not just having the view. Anyone can have the view. It's fun to have the view. Interconnectedness, selflessness, they all sound wonderful. So let's look for a moment at the way embodied action moves. And the first thing I want to talk about, if I could, is uh, living with integrity in accordance with the interconnectedness of the view. So many of us, we, we're, we are decent people in this room, there's no question. Not very many thieves get through the door because <laughs> it's not interesting to them. <laughs> But it doesn't mean, so 
perceptually we're pretty on board. But there's a righteousness within most of our precepts where we're kind of pitting ourselves against one another, much like I spoke about the New Year's resolution, the themes of one part of myself really wanting to betray the precept and the other part of myself trying to hold myself in check, the superego. And that's not really what interconnectedness is about. It's not about an inward struggle. It's about a way of seeing. It's a perceptual change. And the actions that come from the change of perception are not actions from righteousness. Actions from righteousness are from the same perceptions we hold, the perceptions of differentiation and separation and individuation. And I'm trying to get myself into a better and more proper position and be better and be good and all of that is just the inward struggle of our normal life. And Dharma moves us beyond that struggle. To see, to live, the view is to live in non-separation. Which means that when a thought of separation arises, we look at it, we ask if it's true, we test it. We don't just act from it or act counter to it just because we, we look at it. Something says, an urge in you says to be selfish in this situation, to take more than your share. You stop in your track. You look at that. What is going on here? What is this? You let that float up. You begin to look at it. That's the action. That's the first real action that we take in alignment with our view. And when you have seen it sufficiently from all of its different sides, you'll see that it isn't true. And after the hundredth or two hundredth or hundred millionth time it arises, it doesn't matter the number, then we don't act from separation anymore. And what you find when, you're not, when we're not acting from separation is that you're acting union. Not because you should act in union, which is the old way that we kept ourselves in line. Not because you must or your teacher told you to. But because that's the way you see. And you didn't see that way until you tested the very assumptions on which separation we're seeing. Seeing. When we do test those assumptions, we see they're not valid. And something else opens up. Some form of interconnectedness actually begins to be seen visually and sensorily begin to sense it and then actions flow from that harmoniously not through will or force or resolve but because that's the truth of what you see and how you know life to be but that remains dormant until we actually act upon that because how your body acts forms the view and intention. And so even though we may know the truth of interconnectedness or have a sense of that in our psyche deeply, intuitively sense that, if our actions still base themselves on separation, then your view and intention will serve that God. 
You see? And she goes, oh my gosh, I've, I've, been, I've been divided in this thing. My dharma has been divided. Yeah, I know this, I sense it. But it's far harder to actually move in that direction. And what's so interesting is that when we surrender our separation through body, speech, and mind, paradoxically, you know your place. Now, what do I mean by that? Because it seems that if we released the need to think separately, you wouldn't know your place. The sense of you would be kind of amorphous. That's what it seems, isn't it? But paradoxically, that's not what happens at all. What actually happens is that there's a sense of mental stability that arises and absolute confidence within that stability of mind. And you, the precepts, because they move from that sense of stability, are automatic. And so somebody says, did you say this? And though you may wish you hadn't, you say, yes, I did. There's no excuse. You don't have to self-apologize unless it hurts somebody. But you just make the statement because that's where you are. That's the place. That's, that's your placeholder. And there's confidence without fear. It's just amazing to me how much of our lives are based upon the fear of being found out, of being discovered. Of thinking that if somebody knew what was inside of me, as the old song used to say, you wouldn't want to know me somehow. And that what plagues our system, which is by far the greatest hindrance in our practice, is the doubt of that self-uncertainty. What should I do now? What is he thinking of me? As if we could read other people's minds and project what they were thinking. We're constantly making adjustments, small adjustments, to our own inward systems. Because, not because, in fact, they are thinking that, but because we're so, we're so porous in our stability that everybody's thoughts get in and intrude upon us. And we try to govern what we think they're thinking of us. We try to govern our actions in accordance with that. That's why when we sit, you see, sitting straight back, open shoulders, confidence, just we're establishing ourselves. And again, this is not incongruent with selflessness. It is selflessness as a manifestation. Selflessness manifests itself as absolute confidence. The assurance. And within tenderness, I don't want to make this a brittle or hard placement. It's tender and soft and sensitive. 
but it's also absolutely confident. It doesn't excuse its place in life. It doesn't say, I should be here. Why am I here when I should be there? What am I doing here? It doesn't says, why, doesn't, never says, why is this happening to me? How can it say, why is this happening to me? That doesn't make any sense to anything. I shouldn't be here. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Not to a Dharma student. It doesn't mean anything. You see, we each know that. But how many times a day do we think, I shouldn't be here? What am I saying this for? My God, what is he thinking of me? You have to put an end to this. You put an end to this through action. By holding the ground of your being. Feeling the emotional states of mind that just follow your thoughts and follow your projections. They are not any more true than the thoughts you incur. They're not some corrective stance that I have to follow. I have to follow my emotions. They're as oft or more off than any other part of our mental content. But there's something else, some steadying factor in all of this that establishes the place where we are without excuses because there can be no other place where we are. It doesn't need an explanation. This is where we are. I don't have to apologize for where I am because this is where I am. There's no other possibility of where I could be. Now just take that fact and act upon it for this week. What would it mean to your life if you just took that fact and asserted it moment after moment. You see the power of action. We each know that. We know that. It's not like I'm saying something new. But because we don't act upon it, we remain unresolved. And then you give a half an inch to old conditioning and it will fill your psychic space. And when we hesitate within our self-doubt, when we hesitate, oh, I don't know, maybe I... The tsunami of your conditioning floods the system. You see? Let me just... This is a paradigm. We are in a a fixed paradigm that we do not realize The paradigm from which we see separation, you and me, this and that. The paradigm of distance and time and separation, distance between us and the time I have yet to go. All of that is part of the way we mentally reform ourselves and hold the world within that formation. And we kind of just kind of move with it. You know, it's a stream. We just kind of move with it. Those are the currents. Everybody else is doing it. I mean, if they're doing it, it must be true, right? Even though we've seen it. This is where your independence has to come forth. This is where your confidence, the dharma, the courage, the dharma courage. How with it? At some point, you'll come to the hell with it. 
At some point you'll meet all the hell with it. I'm not going to follow this. I'm, I can't keep doing this. And at that point there'll be this, in Buddhism it's called aditan, the real resolve, not the New Year's resolve. The alignment of spirit, intentionality, and absolute conviction. And I'm not going back, that's it. I don't care what happens, I'm not going back, that's all. Then, you know your place. This is much more serious than many of us have invested in it. There's much more to this than just coming in and listening to a lecture once a week. And you're changing nothing in your life, which is beautiful. Because you're saying when you do not change that everything, everything is Dharma food. I'm just going to eat it all up. I'm just going to, like I was ravenously hungry, eat everything in front of me. The second quality of action, embodied action. And I want to talk about this for a little bit. Is, it's the, it's the, that it is both qualitative and quantitative. Many Dharma lectures will just talk about the qualitative aspect of it. Just to talk about, like when we talk about walking meditation, right? We're not going anywhere. If you go somewhere, that's quantitative. You're getting going from A to B. How many laps have you done? How many miles have you run today? That's quantitative motion. Right? So when you're doing walking meditation, it's not about that. It's, well, it's about the qualitative aspect of being and moving without being pressured by time. So most people think of action as qualitative. Dharma action is qualitative. And they think of secular action as quantitative. Right? Did I get the things done? How many check, did I check off all the things I had to do today? That's quantitative. I say that true embodied action is both quantitative and qualitative. It doesn't forget what you're doing. When you're walking out to the car, you don't lose your way because something caught your attention. You get to the car. But the process of going is not linear. It's not, that's the only thing that is a, it's a, this moment is about. It opens. It's inclusive. Just to give you an example, I had a book. Somebody gave me a really nice book, but it, I had another copy of it or something. I don't remember what the problem was, but I knew it wasn't for me, so I just kept it. And then people would come up. I had no idea what I was keeping it for. And uh, people would come up and, and through the interactions. Finally, after a few weeks, I think, somebody came up with the exact need for this book. So I just took it out, <laughs> gave it to them because I could see that I had been holding that book for them. Now, that is qualitative. It's quantitative in the sense that I knew I needed to give the book away, but I wasn't fixed on who I was going to give it to and the reason I was going to and the, how I was going to inscribe it and all. It was just waiting for the need to arrive. And that's the serendipity of life. That invites the wonder into life. 
When you, oh, so that's why I'm here. Well, that's what I'm doing here. My God, I died for, jeez, I never knew that until this moment. If it's just quantitative, there, you, you won't open to the wonder, to the mystery, to the serendipity, to the happenstance. And that's where the fun is. You know, I, all of us have had those beautiful occasions where just the moment just moves in some mysterious way and you realize that the reason you thought you were there is not the reason you're there at all. Or the reason you're having interactions is not what you thought upon them. In fact, I will say that 99% of your life is of that context. You're just not seeing the real reason, what is needed in that moment. You can't see out of the context of the quantitative to see the qualitative. Because if we could, we would recognize immediately what the universe was trying to teach us. Always, forever, in front of our eyes. That's, it gets so exciting, it gets so wondrous, it's, so, um, it's inviting the mystery in. In, fi- in fact, I'm not a strong person on affirmations, but it's useful sometimes just to welcome in the wonder. Before you get out of bed, say, maybe I open to the wonder that will be before me today. Just to set me up so that I'm not just quantitative in what I do. I'm not just checking off the list of what, I, what my day was about in my head. And you'll be surprised when you offer yourself that intention how miraculous it does open. The third action from embodied action is action from the new paradigm versus the old. Now, I've spoken something about this, but I want to go a little more into it because there's an emotional body that we each carry that has a very strong uh, ignorance invested ignorance in it. In fact, our emotions are by far the most embedded ignorant part of our consciousness. We don't allow them to come to light and be seen. We just obey them. We think that they're the true depiction of the moment. And let me just give you an example, if I could like one that isn't that uncommon, where you meet somebody who you perceive is of more value on this earth than you, which is already, you're already mistaken, but, but let's, you know, a teacher or somebody who's a mentor or somebody who you have invested a great deal of, of untruth into. <laughs> and what you're in conversation with that person and they happen to look away. I say this because somebody actually brought this up to me. And I, I glanced away and she started to, I could feel emotionally, she just kind of imploded. And I, I said, wait, what's going on here? What, what's, she said, oh, you know, when you looked away, I could see you really weren't interested in me. 
and I felt abandoned. And I said, wait, wait, I was, I was looking because there was somebody I wanted you to meet in the room. <laughs> she had completely misread my glancing away. But what's important is that we all misread everybody's glance. And then what happens is that the pain in our system that we're not aware of, we think it's the truth, is immediately invested in that glance away with old issues, emotional issues like abandonment issues or I'm not worthy issues or I'm unlovable issues or whatever our issues are. And then we play out that story as if it had the truth to the situation. This is where 90% of our neurosis comes through the emotional unbalance. We give ourselves away to the emotion because we, we, we are unwilling to re-examine ourselves at that level. Because the emotions seem to hold something that's really true to us. Yeah, we can see thoughts are kind of untrue. But emotions, when I'm feeling this, I mean, I'm angry, that's, right? This is where we have, we're just stopping there. This is the old conditioning. This is the past coming through the present. This is the conditioned past. What we have learned. The conditions arise in a certain situation. Somebody glances away. Those conditions bring forth the conditions in us to perceive this from our pain. Once perceived from our pain, we're, we just slide down the pain channel. And it is here that we have to confront the old paradigm. We do it in body. We feel the sense of being abandoned, but we don't hold the truth of that logic of the emotion. We don't say, oh, that I'm feel he glanced away because he doesn't like me. We see that, we feel the emotion of that, but we don't give it the validity that it seems to want to have. Now you have to live in the present as the emotional body is playing forth its pain. And that requires you to act differently than feeling unlovable. Instead of slumping your shoulders, turning away, thinking the world hates you, you stay your course, you square your shoulders, you look, and if you want to say, How, why did you just glance away, Rodney? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> And if I say, because you're not interesting, <laughs> you hold your glaze and say, I think you're mistaken. <laughs> nobody can take that away from you. Nobody, nobody is more powerful than you, has more to say than you, that has more authority than you. No one. You hold your own and let your body feel that confidence. The confidence of your own spirit. Of your own place on earth. To know it through action. Because this is where we are. It's not like it's disputable. Oh, I'm not lovable here. I have to slither away to some other place where I can kind of hunker down. No, you are here. Unlovable or not, I don't care. You're here. Now show up for being here. Show up to here. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, can we just sit for a minute or two? So how to just feel your body here. Feel your body establish itself. Don't let the mind waver in relationship to the body. The body knows where you are. Let it be your guide. And then act from that truth. You know the earth, no apology. Because to the earth, you are exactly where you need to be. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.